This is Chapter Twenty Four of the American Claimant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The American Claimant by Mark Twain, Chapter Twenty Four. Next day, sure enough, the cablegram didn't come. This was an immense disaster, for Tracy couldn't go into the presence without that ticket, although it wasn't going to possess any value as evidence. But if the failure of the cablegram on that first day may be called an immense disaster, where is the dictionary that can turn out a phrase sizable enough to describe the tenth day's failure? Of course, every day that the cablegram didn't come made Tracy all of twenty-four hours more ashamed of himself than he was the day before, and made Sally fully twenty-four hours more certain than ever that he not only hadn't any father anywhere, but hadn't even a confederate, and so it followed that he was a double-dyed humbug, and couldn't be otherwise. These were hard days for Barrow and the art firm. All these had their hands full trying to comfort Tracy. Barrow's task was particularly hard, because he was made a confidant in full, and therefore had to humor Tracy's delusion that he had a father, and that the father was an earl, and that he was going to send a cablegram. Barrow early gave up the idea of trying to convince Tracy that he hadn't any father, because this had such a bad effect on the patient, and worked up his temper to such an alarming degree. He had tried, as an experiment, letting Tracy think he had a father. The result was so good that he went further, with proper caution, and tried letting him think his father was an earl. This wrought so well that he grew bold, and tried letting him think he had two fathers, if he wanted to but he didn't want to, so Barrow withdrew one of them, and substituted letting him think he was going to get a cablegram, which Barrow judged he wouldn't, and was right. But Barrow worked the cablegram daily for all it was worth, and it was the one thing that kept Tracy alive. That was Barrow's opinion. And these were bitter hard days for poor Sally, and mainly delivered up to private crying. She kept her furniture pretty damp, and so caught cold and the dampness and the cold and the sorrow together undermined her appetite, and she was a pitiful enough object, poor thing. Her state was bad enough, as per statement of it above quoted, but all the forces of nature and circumstance seemed conspiring to make it worse, and succeeding. For instance, the morning after her dismissal of Tracy, Hawkins and Sellers read in the Associated Press dispatches that a toy puzzle called Pigs in the Clover had come into sudden favor within the past few weeks, and that from the Atlantic to the Pacific all the populations of all the states had knocked off work to play with it, and that the business of the country had now come to a standstill by consequence. That judges, lawyers, burglars, parsons, thieves, merchants, mechanics, murderers, women, children, babies, everybody, indeed, could be seen from morning till midnight absorbed in one deep project and purpose, and only one, to pen those pigs, work out that puzzle successfully, that all gaiety, all cheerfulness, had departed from the nation, and in its place care, preoccupation, and anxiety sat upon every countenance, and all faces were drawn, distressed, and furrowed with the signs of age and trouble, and marked with the still sadder signs of mental decay and incipient madness that factories were at work night and day in eight cities and yet to supply the demand for the puzzle was thus far impossible hawkins was wild with joy 
but Sellers was calm. Small matters could not disturb his serenity. He said, "'That's just the way things go. A man invents a thing which could revolutionize the arts, produce mountains of money, and bless the earth, and who will bother with it, or show any interest in it? And so you are just as poor as you were before. But you invent some worthless thing to amuse yourself with, and would throw it away if let alone, and all of a sudden the whole world makes a snatch for it and outcrops a fortune. Hunt up that Yankee and collect, Hawkins. Half is yours, you know. Leave me to potter at my lecture." This was a temperance lecture. Sellers was head chief in the temperance camp, and had lectured, now and then in that interest, but had been dissatisfied with his efforts. Wherefore he was now about to try a new plan. After much thought he had concluded that a main reason why his lectures lacked fire or something was that they were too transparently amateurish. That is to say, it was probably too plainly perceptible that the lecturer was trying to tell people about the horrid effects of liquor when he didn't really know anything about those effects except from hearsay, since he had hardly ever tasted an intoxicant in his life. His scheme now was to prepare himself to speak from bitter experience. Hawkins was to stand by with the bottle, calculate the doses, watch the effects, make notes of results, and otherwise assist in the preparation. Time was short, for the ladies would be along about noon, that is to say, the temperance organization called the Daughters of Siloam, and Sellers must be ready to head the procession. The time kept slipping along. Hawkins did not return. Sellers could not venture to wait longer, so he attacked the bottle himself and proceeded to note the effects. Hawkins got back at last, took one comprehensive glance at the lecturer, and went down and headed off the procession. The ladies were grieved to hear that the champion had been taken suddenly ill and violently so, but glad to hear that it was hoped he would be out again in a few days. As it turned out, the old gentleman didn't turn over or show any signs of life worth speaking of for twenty-four hours. Then he asked after the procession, and learned what had happened about it. He was sorry, said he had been fixed for it. He remained abed several days, and his wife and daughter took turns in sitting with him and ministering to his wants. Often he patted Sally's head and tried to comfort her. "'Don't cry, my child. Don't cry so. You know your old father did it by mistake, and didn't mean a bit of harm. You know he wouldn't intentionally do anything to make you ashamed for the world. You know he was trying to do good, and only made the mistake through ignorance, not knowing the right doses, and Washington not there to help. Don't cry so, dear. It breaks my old heart to see you, and think I've brought this humiliation on you, and you so dear to me and so good. I won't ever do it again, indeed I won't. Now be comforted, honey, that's a good child. But when she wasn't on duty at the bedside, the crying went on just the same. Then the mother would try to comfort her and say, "'Don't cry, dear. He never meant any harm. It was all one of those happens that you can't guard against when you are trying experiments that way. You see, I don't cry. It's because I know him so well. I could never look anybody in the face again if he had got into such an amazing condition as that a purpose. But, bless you, his intention was pure and high, and that makes the act pure, though it was higher than was necessary.' We're not humiliated, dear. He did it under a noble impulse, and we don't need to be ashamed. 
there don't cry any more honey thus the old gentleman was useful to sally during several days as an explanation of her tearfulness she felt thankful to him for the shelter he was affording her but often said to herself it's a shame to let him see in my crying a reproach as if he could ever do anything that could make me reproach him but i can't confess i've got to go on using him for a pretext he's the only one i've got in the world and i do need one so much as soon as sellers was out again and found that stacks of money had been placed in bank for him and hawkins by the yankee he said now we'll soon see who's the claimant and who's the authentic i'll just go over there and warm up that house of lords during the next few days he and his wife were so busy with preparations for the voyage that sally had all the privacy she needed and all the chance to cry that was good for her then the old pair left for new york and england sally had also had a chance to do another thing that was to make up her mind that life was not worth living upon the present terms if she must give up her impostor and die doubtless she must submit but might she not lay her whole case before some disinterested person first and see if there wasn't perhaps some saving way out of the matter she turned this idea over in her mind a good deal in her first visit with hawkins after her parents were gone the talk fell upon tracy and she was impelled to set her case before the statesman and take his counsel so she poured out her heart and he listened with painful solicitude she concluded pleadingly with don't tell me he is an impostor i suppose he is but doesn't it look to you as if he isn't you are cool you know and outside and so maybe it can look to you as if he isn't one when it can't to me doesn't it look to you as if he isn't couldn't you can't it look to you that way for for my sake the poor man was troubled but he felt obliged to keep in the neighborhood of the truth he fought around the present detail a little while then gave it up and said he couldn't really see his way to clearing tracy no he said the truth is he's an impostor that is you you feel a little certain but not entirely oh not entirely mr hawkins it's a pity to have to say it i do hate to say it but i don't think anything about it i know he's an impostor oh now mr hawkins you can't go that far a body can't really know it you know it isn't proved that he's not what he says he is should he come out and make a clean breast of the whole wretched business yes at least the most of it it ought to be done so he set his teeth and went at the matter with determination but purposing to spare the girl one pain that of knowing that tracy was a criminal now i'm going to tell you a plain tale one not pleasant for me to tell or for you to hear but we've got to stand it i know all about that fellow and i know he is no earl's son the girl's eyes flashed and she said i, I don't care a snap for that go on this was so wholly unexpected that it at once obstructed the narrative hawkins was not even sure that he had heard aright he said i don't no that i quite understand do you mean to say that if he was all right and proper otherwise you'd be indifferent about the earl part of the business absolutely you'd be entirely satisfied with him and wouldn't care for his not being an earl's son that being an earl's son wouldn't add any value to him 
not the least value that i would care for why mr hawkins i've gotten over all that daydreaming about earldoms and aristocracies and all such nonsense and am become just a plain ordinary nobody and content with it and it is to him i owe my cure and as to anything being able to add a value to him nothing can do that he is the whole world to me just as he is he comprehends all the values there are then how can you add one she's pretty far gone he said that to himself he continued still to himself i must change my plan again i can't seem to strike one that will stand the requirements of this most variegated emergency five minutes on a stretch without making this fellow a criminal i believe i will invent a name and a character for him calculated to disenchant her if it fails to do it then i'll know that the next rightest thing to do will be to help her to her fate poor thing not hinder her then he said aloud well gwendolen i want to be called sally i'm glad of it i like it better myself well then i'll tell you about this man snodgrass snodgrass is that his name yes snodgrass the other's his nom de plume it's hideous i know it is but we can't help our names and that is truly his real name and not howard tracy hawkins answered regretfully yes it seems a pity the girl sampled the name musingly once or twice snodgrass snodgrass no i could not endure that i could not get used to it no i, I should call him by his first name what is his first name his uh, his initials are s m his initials i don't care anything about his initials i can't call him by his initials what do they stand for well you see his father was a physician and he he well he was an idolater of his profession and he well he was a very eccentric man and what do they stand for what are you shuffling about they well they stand for spinal meningitis his father being a f i never heard such an infamous name nobody can ever call a person that a person they love i wouldn't call an enemy by such a name it sounds like an epithet after a moment she added with a kind of consternation why it would be my name letters would come with it on yes mrs spinal meningitis snodgrass don't repeat it don't i can't bear it was the father a lunatic no that is not charged i'm glad of that because that is transmissible what do you think was the matter with him then well i don't really know the family used to run a good deal to idiots and so maybe oh there isn't any maybe about it this one was an idiot well yes he could have been he was suspected suspected said sally with irritation would one suspect there was going to be a dark time if he saw the constellations fall out of the sky but that is enough about the idiot i don't take any interest in idiots tell me about the sun very well then this one was the eldest but not the favorite his brother xylobalsamum wait give me a chance to realize that it is perfectly stupefying xylo what did you call it xylobalsamum i never heard such a name it sounds like a disease is it a disease no i don't think it's a disease it's either scriptural or well it's not scriptural then it's anatomical i knew it was one or the other 
yes i remember now it is anatomical it's a ganglion a nerve centre it is what is called the xylobalsamum process well go on and if you come to any more of them omit the names they make one feel so uncomfortable very well then as i said this one was not a favorite in the family and so he was neglected in every way never sent to school always allowed to associate with the worst and coarsest characters and so of course he has grown up a rude vulgar ignorant dissipated ruffian and he it's no such thing you ought to be more generous than to make such a statement as that about a poor young stranger who-who-why he is the very opposite of that he is considerate courteous obliging modest gentle refined cultivated oh for shame how can you say such things about him i don't blame you sally indeed i haven't a word of blame for you for being blinded by your affection blinded to these minor defects which are so manifest to others who minor defects do you call these minor defects what are murder and arson pray it is a difficult question to answer straight off and of course estimates of such things vary with environment with us out our way they would not necessarily attract as much attention as with you yet they are often regarded with disapproval murder and arson are regarded with disapproval oh frequently with disapproval who are those puritans you are talking about but wait how did you come to know so much about this family where did you get all this hearsay evidence sally it isn't hearsay evidence that is the serious part of it i knew that family personally this was a surprise you you actually knew them knew zylo as we used to call him and knew his father dr snodgrass i didn't know your own snodgrass but have had glimpses of him from time to time and i heard about him all the time he was the common talk you see on account of his on account of his not being a house-burner or an assassin i suppose that would have made him commonplace where did you know these people in cherokee strip oh how preposterous there are not enough people in cherokee strip to give anybody a reputation good or bad there isn't a quorum why the whole population consists of a couple of wagon-loads of horse-thieves hawkins answered placidly our friend was one of those wagon-loads sally's eyes burned and her breath came quick and fast but she kept a fairly good grip on her anger and did not let it get the advantage of her tongue the statesman sat still and waited for developments he was content with his work it was as handsome a piece of diplomatic art as he had ever turned out he thought and now let the girl make her own choice he judged she would let her spectre go he hadn't a doubt of it in fact but anyway let the choice be made and he was ready to ratify it and offer no further hindrance meantime sally had thought her case out and made up her mind to the major's disappointment the verdict was against him sally said he has no friend but me and i will not desert him now i will not marry him if his moral character is bad but if he can prove that it isn't i will and he shall have the chance to me he seems utterly good and dear i have never seen anything about him that looked otherwise except of course his calling himself an earl's son maybe that is only vanity and no real harm when you get to the bottom of it i do not believe he is any such person as you have painted him 
I want to see him. I want you to find him and send him to me. I will implore him to be honest with me, and tell me the whole truth, and not be afraid. Very well. If that is your decision, I will do it. But Sally, you know, he's poor, and— Oh, I don't care anything about that. That's neither here nor there. Will you bring him to me? I'll do it. When? Oh, dear, it's getting toward dark now, and so you'll have to put it off till morning. But you will find him in the morning, won't you? Promise? I'll have him here by daylight. Oh, now you're your own old self again, and lovelier than ever. I couldn't ask fairer than that. Good-bye, dear. Sally mused a moment alone, then said earnestly, I love him in spite of his name, and went about her affairs with a light heart. End of chapter 24